0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we explore timely and important legal issues and questions facing the farming community today. For community-based farms with a focus on sustainability, managing legal risks is especially important as many innovative farm enterprises, like community-supported agriculture programs, on-farm suppers and gardening classes, and unique arrangements for land access and employment do not fit neatly into our legal system, leading to vulnerability. But Through legal education, we can cultivate greater resilience for your farm business so that you can continue to grow in ways that best support you, your relationships, and your community. At Farm Commons, we'll show you why and how. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Farm Commons podcast. This is Eva here, and we are continuing on in our exploration of employment law that we started in our previous episode, episode 35, where Sarah and I discussed avoiding discrimination in hiring and firing on the farm. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. But for today's episode, we're uh, covering a different angle of employment law and an important one and it's one that intersects the really um You know, deeply impactful work of food recovery, food recovery, food waste mitigation, food access, food justice, and um, community building through the practice of gleaning. So we actually get lots of questions at Farm Commons about how to manage legal risks when gleaning, and um, you know, from all those questions, our team at Farm Commons has done lots of research, and our director, actually Rachel Armstrong. Um, has done the most of that research. And she will be presenting today, which is May twenty fifth, 2021, at the International Gleaning Symposium, hosted by the Association of Gleaning Organizations. And thanks to the Center for Food and Agriculture Food Systems at Vermont Law School for inviting Rachel and Farm Commons to be a part of that really important conversation about gleaning. So if you aren't able to attend today or listening to this in the future, you weren't able to attend in the past, Uh, don't worry. In this episode, we are going to hit all of the high and important notes about um, what to be thinking about when either managing a gleaning program, being a part of a gleaning program in terms of managing legal risks. So really grateful to have Rachel here with us to share her research and give some insight um, into this important Uh, legal topic, but also important um, community food space. So, hey, Rachel, thanks so much for being here. Hi,
1: Eva, and um, hi to everybody listening in. I hope you're enjoying a terrific late spring, early summer, and that the, uh, you know, the sun is shining on you and a soft breeze is blowing.
0: Mm, That sounds nice, (laughs) especially out in the field. I know the long days are are here. They are here. They are not getting much longer, actually. The summer solstice is in just a, is under a month away. That's crazy. <laughs> it's glorious.
1: It's glorious. I think as the mother of three young children, the best thing is that after they go to bed, I can still go outside and get some work done because it's still light out. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to savor it for the next few weeks before it starts getting, yeah. <laughs> uh, the days get shorter again.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, there is that sweet spot of time where like after the days start getting shorter. It still feels long because it's very incremental for sure. We've been en- right. enjoying time after work in the garden too. And um, right now our we have lots of Swiss chard, our potatoes are about ready and our radishes are dwindling. And I f- keep going out there picking as many as possible before they get all pithy, but I am the sole radish eater in our household. <laughs> so we have all of these radishes in the fridge and I'm at a loss with what to do with all of them other than eat them with butter
1: right right i mean you can saute up a mess of radishes but you know at some point there's it exceeds capacity but yeah, must be nice, must be nice up here in zone 4A, you know, uh, <laughs> things are a little <laughs> lean. <laughs> yeah,
0: and for, for all you listeners, I'm in 7B down in North Carolina. So um, we're transitioning here into the summertime. And, you know, I know on a lot of farms with the seasonal transition, there, there comes a need to transition crops in the field and gleaning can often um, be an important f- an important mechanism for for that transition to happen, depending on like which organizations are running gleaning programs in the area, who's available, is anyone even interested in gleaning? And um, you know, in this time, 2021, um, there there is significant interest in gleaning, which is why there is the International Gleaning Symposium, and and you know why we're talking about this. So, Rachel, I'd love to hear um, from you. You know, what is gleaning, especially um, as a lead-in into the legal perspective, but maybe not too legally yet.
1: <laughs> not yet, not yet. We'll, we'll start with the basics, yeah. So gleaning is a concept that most of us are familiar with um, somewhere in our minds anyways. And when we think about gleaning, we think about folks who go into uh, the field um, to harvest fruits, vegetables, um, grains even, um, after the farmer is done with her or his work. So the former has taken off the marketable crop. What remains is maybe something that's, you know, cosmetically challenged, um, maybe under or overripe, uh, but that the product still works for the household consumer. It's still fine. It's something that they um, want and can use. So gleaning is a process of going um, into the field, taking that product out and, um, and helping the community to, to enjoy that by distributing it.
0: Yeah, the phrase um, "ugly but yummy" comes to mind, and I've actually seen that on some products at the grocery store. There's a bin at our we have a we have food line down here, and there's a bin of avocados that say "ugly but yummy," and without fail, they're not the best looking, but they're the best for making guacamole because <laughs> they're ready. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Being able to take that, that
1: product, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's something more primal in all of us that, you know, I call it the, um, the ant mentality, you know, uh, in the tale of the grasshopper and the ant, where you need to squirrel things away. You need to, uh, value, um, everything, um, that you, that you have food wise, who knows, leaner times may be coming. So (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's helpful to have that, um, you know, that mentality um, about using everything that we have. I think that's, you know, that's the impulse where gleaning comes from. Um, it also comes from a sense of, um, of justice, um, justice to the, to the product, of course. Um, it was grown, it was produced. Doesn't it deserve to be eaten? Mm-hmm. Um, and then justice for those that um, want for fresher fruits and vegetables. Uh, very often those that don't have um, as much means um, aren't able to afford uh, fresh product um, and would love to take advantage of something that is, is uh, still delicious, still whole, um, still healthy.
0: Yep, absolutely, sure, sure the the bounty of the harvest, especially when the bounty is too much to take to market um, and otherwise would we'll get tilled under. So yeah, makes a whole lot of sense to, to have gleaning be a practice and one that folks can come in and take a part of and be a part of that, that um, community ritual of sharing the harvest, and in terms of, and now listeners, I'm going to bring it back to the law, <laughs> mm-hmm. and in terms of who those people are who are who are lending their time and their bodies to do the, the I'm going to say work here, but I don't mean that legally, <laughs> but to do the work of getting the crops, you know, cleared from the field to go on to their next life, whether it's donated to a food bank, um, donated to schools or other institutions. um, You know, those people are often folks who are volunteering their time. And so when we get asked about gleaning, an inevitable question that we have to ask um, the person who's thinking about gleaning is, you know, who who is a volunteer? We need to consider are the people showing up to do the gleaning work? What is the nature of their worker status, legally speaking. And so we often think, yes, volunteer. But who is a volunteer, Rachel, <laughs> legally speaking? Right,
1: right. That's a great question. Oftentimes, we get this question after folks have have experienced you know, some of our educational programming. Um, and in that process, maybe their eyes have been opened to the fact that employment law is very broad and affects a lot of people. Um, they've become aware somehow that we, our intuitive sense of who is and is not a volunteer may not be accurate. So all of a sudden, these light bulbs are going off in their mind, and they're like, "Whoa! I think I need to, I think I need to do a little bit more research about who is legitimately a volunteer." We all think we know what a volunteer is. A volunteer is a person that wants to donate their time to a good cause and isn't paid for it. Right? I mean. That's what we all think a volunteer is, right? But at the same time, the law wants to define everything on its own um, for its own purposes. So when it comes to understanding um, who is a volunteer, let's orient ourselves to the fundamental question we are actually asking. What we are actually asking is who is not an employee? Who, for whom do I not need to follow employment laws? So that's that's those are the two sides of these of these scales. On one hand, we have who is a volunteer. But the other natural question on the other side is who is an employee? Who are the people that I have to pay? You know, the people that I'm responsible to adhere to employment laws for. So this comes up in the context of gleaning because we've got folks who are out there in the field, you know, picking up the squash or the tomatoes or, you know, whatever, um, and we're wondering um okay uh these folks aren't employees right they're volunteers right just as you said the next natural question is what is a volunteer who is a volunteer well the bummer part is that the law doesn't actually give us a really clear answer sure if you google it if you if you look for um a definition of volunteer under federal law you're gonna you're gonna find one and it's a volunteer that i'm sorry it's a it's It's a statute that a lot of us kind of cling to when it when this conversation gets opened up, we turn to this uh, this passage um, of the of of the federal regulations when we are looking at um, at a definition for volunteer. Now, bear with me, listeners, I am actually going to read to you what this says. So it is section uh, 553.101, volunteer, in finger quotes, defined. A volunteer is an individual who performs hours of service for a public agency, for civic, charitable, or humanitarian reasons, without promise, expectation, or receipt of compensation for services rendered, is considered to be A volunteer during such hours. (laughs) Ta-da! A volunteer is a person who donates time to a public agency for civic charitable or humanitarian reasons and is not compensated for it. That seems helpful but we've got that key phrase in there who performs hours of service for a public agency. Well what's a public agency? If you look at the definition of that, it is a state, a political subdivision of a state, or an interstate governmental agency. So this is a fine definition, but oops, it is completely limited to volunteering for government. Now, the reason this definition of volunteer is defined to volunteering for government is because of its position within the larger regulation. This uh, this definition is tucked in um, within the broader part 553, which is about the application of the Fair Labor Standards Act to employees of state and local governments. So for anyone not familiar with the Fair Labor Standards Act, that is a piece of federal legislation yeah, passed a long time ago, about 80 years ago. Uh, and it is the, the, the federal law that created uh, the minimum wage and overtime um, in the United States of America. So uh, when the federal government created the minimum wage and overtime, um, they of course did a lot of other things, defined a lot of other things, um, and part of that was defining how minimum wage and overtime applied to employees of state and local governments. So This is where they ran into this situation of a volunteer, who is and is not a volunteer, um, when do they need to be paid, but all in the context of volunteering for government. Now, I don't have any statistics on this, but I would wager a bet that the, the vast majority of volunteers in America are not volunteering for government. We do see that. I'm always surprised when I go into the DMV in Wisconsin, at least. I go into the DMV and there are volunteers (laughs) helping to staff, you know, the driver's license renewal station. So, you know, they would meet that definition, this definition um, of a volunteer. But the rest of us that are out there volunteering for local nonprofits, you know, for hunger relief, uh, doing things like gleaning, technically are not going to be meeting this definition that's not a problem per se because you know we're uh, we're not necessarily concerned with the the larger portion of this statute the application of the fair labor standards act to employees of government the reason we're looking at this is kind of because we're desperate we're desperate for a definition for volunteer this is the only thing that we've gotten from the statutes and regulations that clearly lays out, that, that pretends to define for us what a volunteer is. So whenever we're looking at what are the laws that impact volunteers, we're, we're just grasping. We're, we're, we're grasping at this, at this regulation to say, oh, okay, okay, this is what a volunteer is, even though it doesn't necessarily apply to the vast majority of volunteering in America. Instead, what we're doing is we're looking to this this regulation that is actually irrelevant to our circumstances. We're looking at it as influential. We're saying, well, okay, so so fine. You know, the, the uh, federal law hasn't come to define um, specifically what a volunteer is in a broader context, but they gave us this, and this at least represents where their thinking is going. This represents the intent um, of uh, legislators to um, to define volunteers. So, hey, let's call it persuasive. If we're going to take that leap and say, look, it doesn't exactly apply to us, but it's persuasive, then we're going to focus on two main parts um, of this definition. A person who performs hours of service for civic, charitable, or humanitarian reasons. So, you know, they're doing it for for good works. And then number two, who does so without promise, expectation, or receipt of compensation. Okay, so at least we have those two elements that we are considering to be you know, highly influential and the basis for what we have on a definition of volunteer um, in, you know, for, for our purposes. So what we can do is we can take a look at the gleaning context. All right. so let's say we have a nonprofit organization that uh, whose mission it is to uh, to alleviate hunger as part of that they do cleaning. So they have a group of people that they send out to um, to a local farms fields to collect um, cabbage, you know, uh, cabbage that maybe the deer have partly grazed or something like that, who knows. Um, So they're going to get some cabbage. Are they working for or are they performing that service for civic, charitable, or humanitarian reasons? Probably, yep. They are out there because they would like to make sure that um, the useful, um, cabbage, uh, that useful uh, cabbage that under-resourced people would like to consume is made available to them. So they're, they're working to alleviate hunger. Are they doing so without expectation or receipt of compensation? Probably probably. Um, the gleaning organization probably isn't paying them for that, uh, for that time spent collecting that cabbage. The plot thickens, though. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes folks are uh, getting cabbage in return for that. Is, that. is that your understanding, Eva? Sometimes that does happen.
0: Yeah, that you get to take home some food with you.
1: Right, right. So does that seem kind of complicated to you? Like, oh, what's going on now? 120%. <laughs>
0: yeah, They're It's right. like, you're doing some work for a good cause, you get some good stuff from it. Um, and I guess, you know, I get kind of caught up in like, where do you draw the line? Like, how much are you to expect to get from it? Should you even expect to get some food? And if you have an ex, you know, if volunteers show up with the expectation of getting food, like, how do you decide what goes to be donated to, you know, one pot of recipients, and then how much do the volunteers themselves receive? Um, yeah, there's there's right. a lot of questions that all kind of daisy chain together.
1: Oh, exactly. And let's say, for example, that the the volunteers are are members of the population that you are trying to to serve. You know, so they are harvesting the cabbage, but they're also the people that would like to receive the cabbage um, at the at the other end of of the deal. You know, they are um, disadvantaged or under resourced or you know out of work, especially in mm-hmm. you know these still pandemic times. Mm-hmm. So things get they get very complicated when thinking about. How that compensation functions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Many organizations are rightfully concerned that uh, if if they allow folks to take some of that cabbage, are they somehow not volunteers anymore? I think that's a really fair question, and this definition does expose why that's a fair concern. It does clearly say people who who serve without promise expectation or receipt of compensation. So that implies that if someone does receive compensation, that they are then no longer a volunteer. Our only other option would be employee. And that's usually not the outcome that a lot of entities are looking for. They want these folks to continue to be classified as employees. So this is This has become a topic of discussion. This has been a point of concern. Um, And the good news is that some additional clarification has been offered from the government on when can uh, individuals receive compensation. Now, it's the same kind of situation where some of this clarification is not exactly on point to who, who, for whom do employment laws apply. Instead, a lot of this clarification has come from the IRS in terms of what is reportable income. Not exactly the same thing. What's reportable income to the IRS is, eh, you know, different can of worms than who is an employee and who has access to the minimum wage over time, things like that. But hey, it's all we got. So we look at it and we consider it to be influential. So in those details, um, uh, the government tends to say, you know, look, any compensation that makes it possible for the person to perform the volunteerism you know is not reportable income it's not compensation for the work so instead what it does is it simply makes it possible for them to do the volunteering this is cleanest neatest easiest when it's compensation for things like mileage or bus fare or you know expense outlays that are, that are, you know, transaction oriented, that we can track, we've got a receipt, hey, I incurred this cost to do this thing, you know, I had to buy, I had to buy crackers, you know, to bring to the, you know, the preschool event, compensate me for the crackers, that kind of thing. Gets a little sticky when the cabbage is technically in return for your time. When I work all day for Farm Commons, and then they pay me at the end of the day, they're paying me for my time. My time spent working, because I am an employee of Farm Commons. So when I get cabbage in return for my my work, in finger quotes, hey, tends to look like employment. So we're in another gray area. Can can volunteers uh, for a gleaning um, project receive compensation? Oh, maybe <laughs> you know. <laughs> Technically, the definition says no. We also know that other resources provided by the government imply that it can happen in some circumstances. However, we also know that it is safest when it is compensation for actual costs incurred to perform the volunteering. So, you know, this, this subject is a little bit of a bummer. It's really interesting, I think, because I'm an attorney, I guess. Um, but, uh, but it's one of those frustrating ones where it doesn't offer clear answers or clear direction. Um, to people in terms of, well, what am I supposed to do in this case?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'm thinking about it from like a hypothetical farm perspective. You know, if I was, you know, running my farm business again, and I was considering having a gleaning organization come out and um, what I would be, you know, I'm wondering what I would be worried about in terms of legal risks. And I would be worried about those, volunteers being injured and what would happen if they got injured and also um, what would happen if those people that were calling volunteers uh, come with the expectation that they're going to get a certain share of the harvest and it's not met and they make a complaint that they did the work and they didn't receive their due and so i would be worried about those two risks happening and now putting. On my farm commons hat <laughs> i think about how would i manage those risks effectively and do my part as the the hosting farm i would want to make sure that somebody involved in the gleaning organization has a process for um accounting for those costs of mileage to make the volunteer work possible, um, has a process for doling out produce as a portion of benefit for the volunteers who show up, and that process, I would hope, would be the same across all volunteers involved, and so it would be standardized. Um, And so at Farm Commons, we always bring it back to the power that's available to us in good paperwork, <laughs> as as rudimentary and not fun as paperwork can seem, um, if you can cultivate a sense of. Um, uh, enjoyment and the fact that you are preventing issues by by putting in place processes for keeping track of, you know, who your volunteers are do you have a system for them um, signing up to show up are they coming on certain days. Um, how many hours is this time block for the gleaning going to happen. Um, is it, you know, stay as long as you want, or is it a dedicated four hours, you know, maybe bonus points. There in. The volunteers might be in some, um, you know, a school or another institution that could um, value those hours volunteering. And so you have another party acknowledging that this is volunteer work. Um, And so just thinking through the different ways to um, keep everyone accountable to each other, to really understand the nature of the gleaning work and what's happening, how it gets done, and who gets what for doing what and when.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I love that. And I think what you're representing, Eva, is that ambiguity, uncertainty and gray areas don't have to mean that we're paralyzed. It doesn't mean we freeze in place and say, oh, my God, I can't do anything, you know, because I don't know the answer. That's an instinct for a lot of us. For a lot of us, that's how we manage, um, you know, that those those moments um, of uncertainty. Uh, But we can move forward from that. Sure, we, you know, take a few moments to freeze, be paralyzed, be upset, (laughs) you know, acknowledge those feelings, feel Mm -hmm. the feels, that's good. (laughs) That's right, all feelings are for feeling. (laughs) Exactly. But then, you know, 10 minutes later, we're, we're gonna find our footing and we're gonna move forward. And every individual is going to be in a position to think for themselves, hey, what do I wanna do about this? What seems right for me in terms of managing risk? And managing that risk is looking at, okay, what's the significance of this experience to, to me right now? What's the significance of this risk? What would it mean to me if, uh, if things went wrong? How, what, what power do I have to influence whether or not they are going to, to go wrong? I think you made a really important uh, distinction in your, um, in your analysis for how you might move forward you said, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to the entity who's sponsoring these volunteers. I'm gonna talk to the nonprofit and say, hey, you know, I'd, love to, I'd love to be involved. I, I really care about your, your mission, but I wanna be sure that our risk is minimized. I wanna be sure that communication with our volunteers is extremely clear, um, that there are procedures and systems in place that minimize the chances of, of uh, disrupted expectations you know, um, that there is a, is a flow. I love, I love the questions that you suggested, folks ask of cleaning entities. But the one thing I wanted to insert in there is I wanna be sure that people are, are aware of who is ultimately responsible if that individual is actually an employee and not a volunteer. The bummer news is that that responsibility is more than likely going to fall to the farmer. They're the ones who are ultimately holding the risk here. So it is especially incumbent on the farmer to ask those questions because they're the ones who are gonna be left holding the bag if this all goes wrong. Now why, why folks are saying why? It's, the, it's the, the gleaning organization that put them there. Sure, it might be the gleaning organization that put them there. And you wouldn't be wrong for thinking that, that this is their problem because we're focusing on the definition of a volunteer but there's a whole nother body of law that also needs to come into play here. So we've talked about this meager, pathetic, inadequate definition of volunteer that really doesn't work for most of us. The other side of that coin is the definition of an employee. I, I alluded to this earlier. If they're not a volunteer, they're an employee. Parentheses, you know, side note. Okay, maybe they're an independent contractor but probably not, let's forget about that for now. For, you know. And side note, they're either a volunteer or they're an employee. Let's talk about the definition of employee. Okay, this one is also not that clearly laid out for these purposes, uh, but we have a lot of material to go on. So again, in the context of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which establishes minimum wage and overtime at the federal level, and that meaning it applies to everyone, no matter what state that they are in. To employ someone basically means to permit them to do the work of a for-profit business. Now that is a synthesis of case law, statutes, regulations. So, you know, if you Google that exact phrase, you're gonna find Farm Commons material because this is what we have synthesized for the purpose of our, of our educational material. Um, so, so let me reiterate, an employee is someone who does the work of a for-profit business. So even if a volunteer, uh, you, I'm sorry, even if a gleaning organization recruits a volunteer and then goes and puts that volunteer um, on the farm and they end up doing the work of a for-profit farm, they have become an employee of the farm. They have not become an employee of the of the gleaning organization. They're not doing the gleaning organizations work of a for-profit business, the cleaning organization is almost always a nonprofit and they're doing the work of the farm, potentially. The work of the farm is the harvest and sale of crops. So harvesting the product is very often the work of the farm, except if it's true gleaning. Now in a true gleaning scenario, this is product that was never going to be harvested. This is product that is defective, over-underripe, you know, cosmetically unsaleable. So nobody's going to pay for it. It's not worth the farmer's time to go in and get those, you know, those misshapen tomatoes uh, because they're not going to make enough money off of them to justify that. So they hand it over to the cleaning entity. Now, in that case, um, you know, they're not doing the work of a for-profit farm. But oftentimes what we're seeing more and more is we're seeing that farmers are getting paid for product that comes out of their field under a gleaning scenario. So the gleaning, and you know, folks have the best of intentions in this case, the best of intentions, they say, look, you know, we care about the farms in our area. We care about the hard work that they are dedicating themselves to, to to produce these tomatoes. We owe it to them to pay them something for these tomatoes, even if it's not a lot, maybe it's not like full, um, you know, first quality value, but you know, we'll pay them second quality value for this product that is wise and good, but it can create a problem for a volunteer versus employee scenario. Once um, an individual is doing the work of the for-profit farm, they are considered an employee. So if they are harvesting crops for which the farmer is paid, well, hey, isn't that what a farm exists to do? To harvest crops and then get paid for them? So that's when things really get complicated. So um, to reiterate, because I know I, I sort of pitch and weave a lot um, verbally <laughs> when I go through these um, when I go through these de- definitions, because honestly they are confusing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to do a little recap to summarize. Under a very traditional gleaning scenario, where an individual is taking truly unmarketable crops out of the field, we have an ex- incredibly low risk of uh, them being viewed as a as, a, as an employee very low risk that they are an employee. Why? They're not doing the work of a for-profit business. It's not the work of the farm to harvest unmarketable crops. Things get dicey when what's being gleaned is actually marketable and or when the farmer is receiving payment for that product. That's when it really starts to look like we're actually meeting the definition of an employee And of course, where we began this conversation is who's who's left holding the bag? The farmer. It's their work that's being done. And so uh, if we do have this disgruntled volunteer um, who decides that they do want to make a claim for something like minimum wage or, you know, wages unpaid because they didn't they didn't get what they expected in compensation. That claim is going to be made against the farm. So it's especially in coming on the farm to, to think about where risk is being created and how they want to manage that. Of course, they're gonna do that in dialogue with the gleaning organization. Like you said, they're gonna to have to ask some questions. How is this being structured? You know, where, how, how are we really getting this, this job done so that we are uh, protecting ourselves in the way that we feel is appropriate?
0: For sure. And Rachel, you do a really good job of painting a picture of you know the type of business structure that a gleaning organization would want to consider in order to truly have volunteers in most of the legal sense cuz right we're inferring a lot here <laughs> of what's what's persuasive um and uh so like you said gleaning organizations are generally nonprofits um and so are there any final tidbits related to that that you that you'd want to share with folks who are considering other entities for gleaning programs. So like I'm thinking about some farm businesses who may have identified that they want to start some kind of gleaning program on their farm and they are for profit um, or You know a value-added good production business that has identified the opportunity to get product to turn into jam because nobody's going to see how spotted the strawberries were but the gleaners can pick them pick the spotted strawberries that wouldn't go to market they could buy them and then turn them into jam and sell that jam and so um how important is that business structure that's that's a terrific scenario it's very important in that context
1: We know from our definitions of volunteer uh, that it is for certain types of entities and that it is for civic, charitable and humanitarian reasons. We know from our definition of employee that uh, it is doing the work of a for-profit business. So let's say we have a jam maker in town that wants to do some gleaning. Um, They want to take some unmarketable strawberries from a local farmer's fields. And so they recruit some volunteers to to do that for them. Uh, Those strawberries actually go back to the, the jam maker. So folks volunteer to do it because they they value the the full utilization of nature's bounty. You know they don't want to see those strawberries rot, and so they they are doing it for for what the volunteer sees as you know important. You know, uh, I'm not sure if justice is the right word or you know benevolence. They're doing it for benevolent, environmentally sensitive um, reasons. Problem is, it's going to a for profit business. What is the work of a for-profit jam maker? It is to procure the product with which to make jam. So getting strawberries is the work of a for-profit strawberry jam company. So if they're using people to go get their strawberries, it doesn't matter that they're dented, bruised, partly smashed, and still delicious. What matters is that that's the jam business's work. And the people who are doing that work, are by default employees. So there we're going to have a, an extremely difficult to impossible time arguing that individuals uh, picking those strawberries are actually volunteers. Now could we come up with, you know, a, a more elaborate structure of entities where, you know, the jam company and um, and the, the bakery and everyone else who wants misshapen strawberries gets together to form a nonprofit, to then recruit people, to then pick the strawberries. And I mean, okay, maybe, <laughs> but she probably work with an attorney. We're, you know Things are getting complicated. Um, so it's not to say that there is absolutely no chance. It's just things are getting complicated.
0: Yep. that's where as the, if they weren't
1: already, right? You yeah, know? for
0: sure. This is getting into like paperwork yoga or paperwork gymnastics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: it's really good to center ourselves on the intent. Look, the intent is not to kill good ideas. The intent is not to leave good food rotting in the field. That is not the intent at all. These laws are in place to protect workers, to protect the value of work. Uh, this is here to, um, to ensure that those that are serving commerce are appropriately compensated for that. If we allow, the, and here's the public policy decision, I'm not saying we as Farm Commons, I'm saying we as the law. If the law allows for individuals to choose to volunteer for, um, for our workplace, I mean, what's to prevent a boss from, you know, coming to an employee on Friday afternoon and being like, hey, was thinking maybe you could volunteer this weekend. Why don't you just come in tomorrow and keep working? How about another eight hours? But this one's volunteer. I mean, that's not the situation that we want. That's, that's a poor public policy position because we have a power differential. There is a power differential between those who are the boss and those who are the employee in a traditional perspective. I'm not saying that that's Universal. You know, there are many farms that work very collaboratively with their employees, but the law works in generalities and says in general, we have this power imbalance that we need to acknowledge and we need to make sure that the playing field is level. In this case, the way we're going to do that is to prohibit volunteering for for profit businesses, treat them like employees, follow these laws. So that's what we've got. It isn't intended to smash all of the good works out there. <laughs> and it, you know, it pains me to be the bearer of bad news in that way. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that folks can, can find a strategy that works for them. It can find a way to recognize what the law is trying to do, um, while also um, achieving the justice that, uh, that folks are striving for when they're looking at gleaning opportunities.
0: Yep, absolutely. Definitely not trying to squash ideas, but rather um, encourage a culture of vigilance around asking questions about the nature of the gleaning program and thinking through each step of the process and how each individual is being honored in their participation um, to do that good thing of sharing the bounty of the harvest with the community. So thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing some of the high notes of um, managing legal risks when Involved in gleaning, whether as a gleaning organization or as a farm hosting the gleaning organization and the gleaners Um, for folks out there who are interested in learning more about gleaning um, the Association of Gleaning Organizations is a great resource. They are the ones who are hosting the International Gleaning Symposium where Rachel will be presenting later today. And um, four of their board of directors are um, actually executive directors of gleaning organizations across the um, Eastern part of the country. So um, definitely check out Hope's Harvest in Rhode Island, Glean, Kentucky, in Kentucky, Salvation Farms in Vermont, and Concrete Jungle in Atlanta, Georgia, um, to get a sense of how their programs operate. You know, what is there a schedule that folks have to check out and sign up for spots to come out on? Do they give a sense of the paperwork involved in the process? Um, and so those are four great organizations to seek gleaning inspiration um, out from. And the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems at Vermont Law School hosts a uh, national gleaning project online, which is really a a library of really robust resources um, for a national gleaning map of food recovery organizations nationwide, as well as legal and policy resources, some of which Farm Commons has helped to create, um, and other reports and research that are relevant to gleaning programs and the national gleaning movement. So thanks again, Rachel.
1: Yeah, also folks, If if you're intrigued and you want to know more about uh, intern and volunteer programs, uh, we have a resource for you. Um, Freshly updated is the Farmer's Legal Guide to Intern and Volunteer Programs. Um, It is at our website. Um, It is what we call a book in five chapters. So uh, (laughs) thorough information. Now, what I especially want to point out is don't stop here. If you're a nonprofit organization, you know, you can't just dust off your hands at this point and say, "Whoo, I'm good. You know, I can have volunteers under any scenario. Not exactly the case. Of course, there are many and nuanced rules about how nonprofits as well can have volunteers. You're gonna find all those details in uh, the Farmer's Legal Guide to Intern and Volunteer Programs, bonus material on the intern stuff. So go get that um, at our website. Recall that um, as a member organization, um, we do ask that you join Farm Commons to get access to that. And the reason we do that is because we want to be there to support you as you go forward in exploring this material. It's not easy. It can be um, it can be difficult, challenging, and you probably have questions. Uh, as a member, you get the opportunity to also ask your questions in our Commons community. Um, we would we'll be thrilled to take your questions there so that we can make sure that you are getting uh, the full value of our resources. Not only that, um, other community members can also um, see and answer your questions so that we can all better work together in getting our feet under us in terms of volunteer and intern programs. So take a look at that. Last thing I gotta mention, uh, many of you right now are farmers who are listening into uh, this program. Maybe you're doing your seeding, maybe you're doing other stuff. But a lot of you are also not farmers, you're agricultural educators, your extension agents, your nonprofit staff. I wanna make sure you know that we have a program coming up next week uh, that starts on June 3rd, Guiding Resilience. It is a five-part workshop that will help you understand uh, the basics of uh, legal education for farmer audiences. This program has been so much fun. We're we're thrilled with it. Um, We uh, we did our first um, first time out of the gate in April, um, and it got great reviews, and we're really excited to host the program again. So if you'd like to spend a couple of hours with us on your June Wednesdays, I highly recommend it. So I'll be your instructor and I will make sure that you understand um, the 10 legal best practices that farmers need to know and how you can safely, securely relay that vital information to the communities that you serve. So head over to our website, take a look at the Guiding Resilience Program, see if that fits into your schedule. If it doesn't, take a look at the July Program you know you wanna spend your summer learning more about the law so that you are ready to go when farmers come back from the fields and start asking questions this fall. So we're there to to help make sure you can move forward on that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we hope you all, um, whether a farmer or agricultural service provider will check out our website, farmcommons.org and we hope to see you um, there as members and on the commons and if not that's okay too happy to know you in podcast space so best wishes for the transition from spring to summer and we'll talk to you next time thanks everyone we hope you enjoyed this episode of the farm commons podcast for more information on what you just heard, as well as a variety of farm law guides, models, checklists, flowcharts, and more, visit our website at farmcommons.org. You can also email us at info@farmcommons.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our online materials. Thanks everyone for listening, and keep on growing.